The Energy Gang is brought to you by Energetic Insurance. Energetic Insurance levels the solar playing field so project developers can offer the same electricity savings to small and medium businesses that were once reserved for the largest companies in the U.S. Their Enerate credit cover policy is an easy button for commercial solar, similar to a FICO score in residential solar. This enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects and turn around portfolio refinancing faster. Go to energeticinsurance.com slash GTM and submit your projects today or follow that link right there in the show notes. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is a leading manufacturer of high-density, high-voltage energy storage solutions for utility, industrial, microgrids, and mission-critical markets. Core Power designed its Mark I energy storage system with best-in-class safety features like its integrated safety handles, concealed front panel covers, and module front display. The Mark I offers market-leading energy density while maintaining lower installation and operation costs. Core Power is taking orders now for deliveries beginning this spring. Find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Thanks a lot for being here. It was a hell of a way to start the 2020s in Australia. Scorching summer heat and wildfires so bad they created their own weather systems. Thousands of people were stranded on beaches along the southeast coast on New Year's Eve. No way in or out of tourist destinations as the fires pinned them in. And a prime minister was slow to respond and quick to dismiss climate change. This week, a look at the bushfires in Australia, their impact in the country, to the grid, and to the politics of coal. Then, a big change could be coming to a foundational federal policy in America, PURPA, a policy from the late 70s that sparked a surge in solar in unexpected states. Are the changes a thoughtful response to market conditions or a political play? Finally, we learn to code. Joe Biden is the latest Democrat to push the idea that laid-off miners should just learn to code. Why did it spark so much derision? Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, they are here with me to discuss these stories. Catherine is in Washington, D.C. She's our policy brain and the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hi. I'll tell you what, I had such a nice rest over the holidays that this week really felt like I was shot out of a cannon. (laughs) You know, whenever I'm feeling like stressed out, I would just check my Twitter feed and look at the pictures that you would post over the holiday season. And you would post some nice (laughs) photo of an ornament looking out your window. And it made me feel very relaxed. (laughs) I refused to listen to the news the entire time. I just couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Jigger Shaw is out in San Francisco. He is our business and finance brain, and he's president of Generate Capital. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how are you? Good. Are you feeling equally uh, explosive, shot out of a cannon like Catherine? (laughs) Well, you know, like I went to Catherine's uh, holiday party, which was wonderful, but I was just chasing my son around the whole time because she has these beautiful like figurines and things around the house. And I was like, don't break them. (laughs) I have four kids. They've all been broken. So I don't know that I had as a relaxing holiday season as uh, as Catherine did. Well, on December 31st, I was sitting here with my baby and my wife in the dark for six hours. We had an extended outage here, and it was actually the fifth uh, major outage that we've had in our neighborhood this year. And so I was sitting there, and I went on 
Twitter to potentially complain just because we've had so many extended outages. And I looked and I just saw these pictures of thousands of people huddled on the beach under this threatening orange sky with nowhere to escape from the heat and smoke and fires and read about the massive power outages and people fleeing cities and towns. And I just thought, how silly would it be for me to complain about my little power outage? Um, and, and so that brings us to the, 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 the destruction there in Australia. The, the country has been gripped by a record fire season caused by severe drought, by hot, windy conditions. Uh, major cities and tourist destinations in the southeast coast have been hit particularly bad. So we're going to talk about the impact and then more importantly, the politics and where coal plays a role, uh, how this might influence climate politics, which has been very up and down in Australia. Uh, first, to the fires themselves. Catherine, describe the impact here. Put the devastation into context. Yeah, it's like 20 million acres, the size of Indiana, like over 32,000 square miles. It's like 10 times California's fires um, in, in a population of 25 million. And there is this island, Kangaroo Island, which is a refuge for all kinds of species. And about a third of that has completely burned down. They're estimating a billion animals have died in this. And in, in some entire species, including some wallabies, um, may be completely wiped out. It, it It's really tragic. And, and I've read some articles about total ecosystem loss as well. Obviously, fires are very important for the health of many ecosystems. But when you have fires this devastating, you potentially wipe out all that diversity and you create massive problems for certain ecosystems to rebound. And so the scope of these fires is causing serious problems. Yeah. And they have several more weeks of fire season. It's not over yet. So, so Jigger, what what happened here? Like, what are the causes of the fires? How do we kind of think about climate change in the context of these fires? Well, I think you start by saying these fires are totally natural. So they have a fire season every year. And as you said, for ecosystem health, the fires, you know, um, they've they've had bad fires in the past, right? In 2009, they had really bad fires where I think 173 people died. So it's not like they haven't had fires in the past. These particular fires started from lightning strikes uh, in Victoria and then also um, arson. And I'm not quite sure whether it was arson or whether it was just people burning like leaves in their backyard. But there's definitely, you know, human-caused fires here too. I think the bigger thing is that the climate is changing around sort of the El Nino, Nina effect of the Indian Ocean. So Australia gets drier during these Nino uh, years than they did in the past. And so that allows the fires to spread faster. There's less uh, water in the soil and in the air. And so not unlike the California conversation we had. And so that makes the fires less predictable. And so I do think that climate has an impact around how much devastation and how hard it is to keep these fires under control, which are frankly already hard to keep under control. I think that's a very fair way to break down the natural variability and the human causes. Um, 
The question is, are we witnessing climate change in action? I mean, are these climate refugees, as many on social media have called them, as many of these folks who have been displaced called themselves? Now, we look at California, and the way we've covered this in California is we've also said, like, these people who are impacted are at the front lines of climate change. When we consider the scope of these fires and the various causes of them, is it fair to call these folks climate refugees? How should we think about this? Well, I think refugee has a defined term, so I wouldn't call them climate refugees. Um, I think these people can return back to their homes or homeland, and so I wouldn't call them that. I think it's more about the fact that, you know, one of the big criticisms of um, the prime minister's response here was that, first of all, he was on vacation because he said, well, fire season's normal. Why should I interrupt my vacation? Then I think it took him a couple weeks before he said, oh, wow, this is really different. I need to spend an additional billion or $2 billion Australian um, to fight this. On top of that, Australians are generally, you know, have an all-volunteer firefighting force. And then now he's using the Australian military to fight it, right? So when we start taking extraordinary measures to deal with what is normally, you know, a normal cycle, maybe it gets worse every 10 years, but a normal cycle, then you start to realize that we're not really prepared for this to happen more frequently and with more intensity, right? And the dollars that we're spending These are not dollars that we have to spend. And so every year, we can't spend an extra billion or two billion Australian on the bushfires every year. And so then it gets you to thinking about, hey, maybe we should have put in slightly more intelligent policy 10 years earlier to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. Maybe that would have been cheaper. But now what do we do, right? And I think that these events put into really stark, you know, clarity for the population that like, this is going to cost us something. And that cost is not going away. We either have to pay for the transition, or we have to pay for these things to happen with more frequency and more intensity every year. Catherine, can you talk about the long tortured politics of climate change in Australia? Yeah, so they did not ratify the Kyoto Agreement in 2001. Kevin Rudd did come in and try to do this big emissions strategy. And uh, it was in Copenhagen, tried to pull an agreement together, which completely fell apart. Uh, He was kicked out of office. They've had sort of this back and forth series of people like Tony Abbott, who are skeptics of climate change, to others who've tried to do something. I think their coal industry is a huge piece. I mean, they're the largest, world's largest exporter of coal. Um, but they just really have been fluctuating and haven't really gotten it together. And I can't, I, I would not pretend to be an expert on the politics uh, in Australia. It is a parliamentary system, but um, they definitely have not come up with a strategy that everybody buys into and that keeps people in office for any period of time. But I would say, I think this is going to cause a groundswell from the grassroots to do something. And even if it's not really about climate 
what they're going to do is they're going to find an enormous amount of tourism lost. And and amazingly, the prime minister has says, oh, no, people keep coming, keep coming. Well, I, I don't think people are going to come to an area that is that has live fires, except my poor dad, who in about two weeks leaves for Victoria for on a Fulbright scholarship um, and is, has been told to bring a mask with him. Um, but I reached out to Audrey Zibelman, who runs the grid in Australia. Now, Audrey was the number two at PJM. Then she was the head of the Public Service Commission in New York State. And then she moved down to Australia to be the CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator. And she said, look, this is this is unbelievable. First of all, we have to worry about the safety of our people uh, on the ground and our workforce. Um, our, our grid is the longest and skinniest in the world. And so the operators have to be extremely agile and be in constant conversation with all the asset owners that are out there generating energy. But she said these fires cause problems for everybody. The heat and dust cause problems for transmission and fuel supply. The smoke causes problems with solar. Um, You need so much more visibility on the grid and diversity of resources to become more resilient. So I think whether or not your focus is climate change or whether it is simply making sure that you have a safe, resilient system, we're going to have to move in Australia to something that's much more easily managed and more distributed and diverse. Well, one of the things that is interesting in uh, in Australia is they lost their, you know, version of cap and trade basically in 2010 um, by one vote. And if you remember... Uh, in 2010, uh, all of the Greens voted against the policy because they didn't think it went far enough. And so, so if one person who was in the Green Party would have voted for it, they would have actually had this carbon trading system that wouldn't have been sort of done by executive order, which is what's been turned around, but they would have had actually a real permanent one in place. And it gets you thinking about you know, sort of what the right theory of change is, right? I mean, I think for many years, we've thought about um, middle of the road, you know, consensus driven policy, uh, which Australia has been quite famous for doing. And, you know, I think in large part, so is the UK with all of their successes. But I think in the US, when, you know, we tried to build something which I didn't love at all, the cap and trade bill in the US, um, you know, you basically had no support from the other political party. And I do think that that dynamic, um, which has been, you know, sort of highlighted in Australia, oddly enough, from the Green Party withholding their votes, you know, is sort of leading to a lot of the populism around the, the world now. And it's not clear to me whether um, this actually is a bad thing for the sitting, for the sitting prime minister, or whether this is you know, something that makes people more tribal. So a caveat here, obviously, like I am not an expert on Australian politics. Uh, The three of us are not experts on Australian politics. I will say, though, that in a country where coal is your most valuable export and it's valued at nearly $50 billion, where LNG exports amount to, uh, you know, nearly $35 billion, uh, those export industries have prevented you from going into recession when many other countries have faced financial turmoil. Uh, that seems to me to be the most powerful force in politics. And so the middle of the road consensus driven policy doesn't work in a country like Australia, and it probably never will work. And so out of a disaster like these fires, 
you have to have some other driving force, whether that's some kind of grassroots pressure, whether it's anger about the prime minister's response to the fires, whatever it is, I I think we're seeing something similar taking place in the United States as well. Uh, And so I say this with the caveat not being an expert on Australian politics, but it's very clear from the last decade or more in Australia's politics that it's very tough to break beyond the, the grip of those export industries. Something different has to influence climate policy, and it's probably more extreme. Certainly in Australia, they're required to vote by law. And I think maybe this will cause them to ask who they're electing, what that person's going to do for them. And even if and, and they could ask, how are you going to protect us from this? And part of that conversation is going to be around climate change. A very brief pause to talk about our supporters of this show. We're brought to you by Energetic Insurance. As anyone in solar knows, operating solar portfolios are only as valuable as their underlying off-taker credit profiles. In commercial solar, the shifting credit tied to these PPAs is a huge risk to portfolio returns and valuation. Energetic Insurance transfers this credit risk to a highly rated insurer, giving developers and investors the confidence and certainty of cash flows required to unlock institutional capital for back leverage or securitization. Their enter rate credit cover is easy to understand insurance that enables financing for unrated or below investment grade corporate off takers by covering payment default risk. If you want a fast and easy way to provide a high credit backstop to your portfolio, go to energeticinsurance.com slash GTM to submit your projects today. That's energeticinsurance.com slash GTM. We've also got a link there for you. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power serves the growing demand for industrial energy storage solutions. It's taking orders now for six gigawatt hours of capacity available in 2020. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. Core Power is building a brand new battery manufacturing plant right here in the U.S., and once it's operational, the 1 million square foot facility will have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. The renewable energy industry needs a new battery manufacturing partner to build tomorrow's grid. That partner is Core Power. You can learn more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. Catherine, this next topic was was built for you. Oh no! Does it have to do with FERC? It does indeed. <laughs> the uh, it's, it's it has to do with FERC and PERPA and all those great acronyms. We'll, we'll try to spell them out for you. Um, we got plenty of wonks, but we have plenty of people here who are just entering this topic for the first time. So here we go. The regulatory body that governs America's grid and pipeline infrastructure is ready to make some major changes to this very important renewable energy policy. Again, it's called PERPA. Uh, Listeners have heard us talk about it many times before. PERPA stands for the Public Utilities Regulatory Act. It's a law that was passed in the late 70s and implemented in the early 80s, and it created a really simple mechanism for promoting alternatives to fossil fuels. Uh, Now, with Republicans in control of the thinned-out agency, FERC, uh, that law could soon be revamped or neutered, depending on where you are sitting. And the question is, what are the consequences for renewables, particularly utility-scale solar, which has really benefited from PERPA in recent years? Okay, so Catherine, give us a very brief overview of PERPA, why it matters, and why it's all of a sudden fostered so much solar development. Yes. So the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act um, was designed to combat what was 
a monopoly utility system by injecting competition. And it was specifically supposed to encourage development of what were called qualified facilities, which were renewable energy technologies. So hydropower, wind, solar, biomass, geothermal, um, cogeneration to some extent. And it was supposed to encourage the development of these technologies. It was supposed to prevent discrimination by the incumbent utilities because there was no way otherwise for anyone to compete and put these technologies on the grid. And they it also was supposed to ensure that any resulting rates for consumers were just and reasonable. So this really injected an an era of competition into a system that was not by design competitive. And ever since then, the utilities have been trying to crush it. Um, and they've been trying to do this by working through Congress. Meanwhile, PURPA has been, over the decades, revised over the years, tweaked a little bit. But what FERC is trying to do right now is a wholesale change in the statute, which Congress, by the way, has the authority to do. And there have been several bills exactly like what FERC is trying to do right now that have never passed through Congress. So part of the issue is, you know, who's actually supposed to make the changes here. But PURPA has been incredibly helpful in states where there wasn't competition and in states that then became leaders in solar and other renewables like North Carolina. Well, let's get into those changes in a moment. But first, Jigger, why why recently was PURPA so much more influential on, say, utility-scale solar development in these states where you didn't have competition? What PURPA did when it first came out was uh, force the electric utility companies to calculate what their avoided cost was and then go to the public service commissions in their states and say, great, this is what we generally pay on average for electricity. And if someone out there can sort of beat this price, then we're happy to buy power from them because PURPA forces us to. And so they would go in and regularly do this. And by the way, AES was created to mine this loophole, right? And so basically, most of our coal plants that were built in the 80s and 90s by AES, you know, were were done this way. And Sometime around 2008 or 2007, when natural gas prices spiked, um, you know, PURPA rates were updated to reflect that because people wanted to build more natural gas plants and they needed to update PURPA to do that. So going into 2011, 2012, 2013, many utility companies were just so lazy that they hadn't updated their PURPA numbers. So they still had PURPA rates at like $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour in Oregon, in Michigan, in other states. Because the, even though the utilities had 150 lawyers, they clearly didn't have enough time to update these uh, regulations. And so when they rejected power purchase agreements with solar companies, solar companies looked around and said, well, how do I get these things built? They looked at the outdated PURPA numbers and the avoided cost um, dockets for the Public Service Commission and said, well, crap, I can make the solar work at $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour. So they started using some of these PURPA guidelines. And then the utilities got smart to it and said, oh, you're right, we should update these things. But it made the utilities more mad than anything. And so then they redoubled their efforts to get rid of PURPA. But at the end of the day, this is all because the utilities are just lazy. Well, Catherine, if... States and utilities are trying to 
update these numbers, and many states have updated their numbers. Why do we need these changes at FERC, and what are the proposed changes at FERC? Sounds like they're pretty comprehensive. Yeah, so some of the changes are to lower the threshold. It was 20 megawatts down to one megawatt, so for what utilities have to purchase. Um, and that means that, you know, it gives utilities much more power to develop this on their own. Um, there also has eliminated any fixed price. They are able to rebut a lot of the assumptions when these qualified facilities present um, their projects for pr power purchase agreements. And what that means is that these projects are going to have a really hard time getting financing because there isn't any certainty. If the utility can change its mind, if the utilities can rebut any of their assumptions, then it's going to be really difficult. And in fact, this closes out a lot of competition. What, what was interesting is that Commissioner Glick um, put in a dissent for this notice of proposed proposed rulemaking, which came out in September of 2019 about these changes. And, you know, in addition to saying this is really Congress's job to do this, said, look, you can say market and competition all you want, but that doesn't mean that's what you're doing. This is actually going to pull back on competition and allow utilities to solidify their stranglehold in their monopoly systems. And maybe more renewables will be built by those utilities. But what it means is that there's no competition. What is the argument in favor of making the changes uh, that Chairman Neil Chatterjee wants to make? His argument in recent press releases and statements to the press is, hey, we think renewables are competitive. They should be able to compete without this structure in place. Is there any merit to the way he's arguing it? Well, so you're right. That's what he's saying. He's saying things have changed since 1980, which is very true. Things have changed. Um, and some states have used PURPA and moved beyond it. And so I just to give you some perspective in North Carolina, I reached out to Peter Ledford from the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. And North Carolina became number two solar state in the country because of PURPA. Now, they've moved beyond to alternative competitive process um, for solar. They've changed the way they do their RFPs. However, they have all of these existing PURPA contracts that need to be recertified because these are assets that were in 10-year contracts, that, but they're 30-year assets. So they still need to be able to renew those contracts. And that will affect all of those existing projects if the utilities can then question all of the cost assumptions. And so um, it will hurt states like North Carolina that have a lot of existing projects, but it will also really hurt the newer states like Michigan and Montana and South Carolina that are trying to build new projects and have no other way to have competition than by using PURPA. I don't know that it hurts that much. I mean, at the end of the day, they're just pushing it to the states. So in South Carolina, I don't think that, you know, South Carolina is going to go anti-renewables anytime soon. And, you know, while Duke might want to be anti-renewables, at the end of the day, they keep throwing enough fly ash into the rivers and stuff to make people pissed off at them in, in North Carolina. So my sense is that these are basically allowing the states that haven't had any benefits from the renewable energy revolution, you know, like Kentucky, to, you know, stay in the dark ages. And for the states that have already recognized that this is a huge economic boon for their states, then they're going to continue to pass state legislation and other things to make sure that renewables continue to get deployed. Will they, though? The, the utilities feel very powerful in many of those states. And this is sort of one way 
to 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 get around that that utility political power not really i mean at the end of the day we were able to get around the utility power in 2012 2013 i'd say by even last year duke had reformed all their perpa rules to make it a five year contract so it's not like duke hadn't figured out a, how to eviscerate perpa before the FERC noper, right? So, and the same thing is true with like Montana, Idaho. Idaho tried to go down to two years. They actually got reversed in court and then they've had to go slightly longer. But like, I just think that where we are is for the states that realize this is the largest economic opportunity of their lifetimes, they're passing laws to make sure this stuff happens and, and that the backward states who aren't doing anything are going to become net importers of clean energy. Yeah, and I would say just um, looking ahead at what's going to play out here, um, FERC seems to be on a very streamlined pathway um, because in November, this came out in, in September, and in November, a bunch of state attorneys general requested more time to really kind of think this through, and FERC denied it. Um, wholesale and said, nope, we're not going to. Um, and so the thought is they will both release a rule um, and a, have time for a rehearing by the end of 2020. So it looks like it's going to, it's on a fast track uh, just by all the signs out there to be done this year. Um, and that's without Congress um, having any, which Congress should be the one to change it. And, and, you know, if there are, and there may be some legitimate reasons to update this legislation, but it is not FERC's job to do that, but it looks like they're going going ahead with it. Yeah, I think that people want renewable energy to be built. And to the extent that PURPA as a tool is eviscerated by the FERC, then the folks at the state level will say, well, we're going to have to pass a law to make things more clear. And those, that new law that makes things more clear will actually be even more imposing on the utility. So I think they will get exactly the opposite of what they wanted. Um, so on to our final topic. Democrats, miners, and coding. There's this meme that started on Twitter last January after mass layoffs at major media outlets. Uh, Learn to code. And that's what legions of trolls told out-of-work journalists they should do to go find new work. And the intended joke was to throw a political and media trope back into the faces of reporters that somehow their unemployment problems would be solved if they just became programmers. Uh, starting in the Obama years, this idea formed that coding could be a catch-all solution to mining and industrial workers getting laid off. It was echoed in the press. There were some pretty major pieces written about it. And it became this cliche and then a tool for harassment for online trolls. So Joe Biden is now catching some grief for echoing this argument. Speaking in New Hampshire recently, uh, he touted programming as a solution for uh, the unemployment woes of miners. He said, anybody who can go down 3,000 feet in a mine can sure as hell learn to program as well. Anybody who can throw coal into a furnace can learn how to program, for God's sake. This time around, his comments got a ton of cynical reaction from the press. Even Andrew Yang stepped in and poked fun at him. So the question is, why? And what are the most effective policies for dealing with the unemployment crisis in mining communities and in the industrial sector? Um, Jigger, what's the intention of this learn to code messaging? Like, where did it come from? Well, so I was reading some of the backstory on it, and it feels like this is actually Biden trying to throw Obama under the bus. Like, that's in the what funny way? Th He's so echoing the Obama policy, though. No. So like what he basically said was that 
Biden jokingly claims that Obama never told him, like, ahead of time before the State of the Union, which programs he was announcing that Biden would be in charge of. And then he was riffing about how Biden, Obama put Biden in charge of jobs of the future, which suggested retraining minors as coders, right? And so it started with him sort of throwing Obama under the bus. And then, like, he just, you know, sort of shuffling his way through stuff like Biden likes to do. And I'm not sure this is even a policy of Biden's. It's not like he was saying that this is the official policy of the Biden campaign to retrain minors as coders. I think it was just one of his famous flubs. And I think everyone went to town on it. I think at the end of the day, look, there is nothing else for these people to do in like Appalachia. It's not like we're going to turn all of these places into the next like sort of hipster tech hub. And so ultimately, we do have to have some serious conversations around what we're going to do and whether people can really stay in place, right? And unfortunately, we allowed this to become a meme around miners learning to code instead of trying to figure out, is it really possible to bring new jobs to these regions? Or as I'm famous for saying, do we just need to buy everybody bus tickets? <laughs> well, yes, you're right. This is not an official policy of the Biden administration. But the reason why we're talking about it and why a lot of other people paid attention to it is because he just sort of casually outlined this perception that took hold in politics over the last you know, four or five years that somehow you're going to take these miners and give them high tech jobs and or programmer jobs and suddenly they're all going to have employment and like that industry is extremely competitive it's it's evolving all the time it's got its own challenges and there's an absurdity to the argument even though you know to be fair to Biden it's not like he was outlining a policy but still just sort of riffing on the idea echoes this sentiment from within the Democratic Party that like that's that's your catch-all solution for what to do with these industrial workers who need to be retrained. Okay, hang on. That narrative is promoted by Breitbart, Daily Caller, and Fox. That's not actually what's happening here. So I reached out to a bunch of folks in Appalachia who are thinking about these issues, and one of them said, well, at least that is an area of the economy that is growing. I mean, at least that's not saying we need more mining jobs again, that this is part of the economy that's growing. And there are people who are working in that sector. There's a woman named Natalie Roper who runs Generation West Virginia. And she's looking at, look, why don't we look at telework options? Why don't we think about, among other things, having people learn how to program in, for an industry that is actually growing? So that is, it's one option. But one issue that I think we need to really think carefully about is that Appalachia, all of that coal country has been a mono economy. It's all been hinged to one resource and one type of technology. And so what we have to do is think of a lot of different things. We have to have this whole be a social enterprise. I talked to Brandon Dennison, who runs Coalfield Development, and I talked to Tom Cormans, who runs Appalachian Voices. And there are actually new jobs and new industries that you can promote in Appalachia. And that's what they're doing. They're taking blue collar skill sets. They're looking at solar enterprise now totally for profit in West Virginia. They're looking at construction jobs, tourism, which is number one in a lot of these places. Um, 
Tom was telling me that in Southern Virginia, there's going to be the a three and a half megawatt solar farm on a strip mining site. So strip mining, the skills that took to strip the land for strip mining are also the skills you need to rebuild that land. And so a lot of those workers, thousands of jobs are can be created by rebuilding that land, reclaiming that land, and putting new economic development in place of it. So I don't think this is about everybody just get a bus ticket. This is about those people deciding what they want. Um, a lot of what they have right now is deep, deep poverty that has and lack of education. And if we can get you know, if we can get them to decide what they want out of their lives and give them not just money, but the resources and tools to build and decide what they really want to build there, I think we can create new economies and new businesses. But they can't just be one thing. So it can't just be coding. It needs to be a lot of different things in a lot of different sectors. Amen. It's absolutely possible, very difficult because of the structural problems in many of these communities that create a such widespread poverty. But many of the solutions you outlined are the ones that are being pushed by local economic development groups. So I do think that that is correct, that that's disconnected from the learn to code narrative. What's actually happening within these communities is a little bit different. With that said, I think the national political conversation tends to focus on solely high tech jobs, again, which are very competitive, changing all the time. And that's where the the, the eye rolling and the joking and the trolling comes in. And I do think that that national political conversation is somewhat disconnected. Um, on top of that, many of the federal retraining programs have been abysmal. We've discussed this in previous episodes. There's not a good track record within the federal government for retraining displaced workers. So we have a problem there. Uh, but with that said, I do think there are plenty of opportunities in local communities and it will you know vary based on industry or you know use of the natural environment obviously tourism can play a much bigger role and you have all these other ancillary industries that can be developed around tourism um, so so I, you look it's a lot more complicated than the national picture would suggest but I do think that there's a little bit of a disconnect on the campaign trail with what's actually happening in local communities and how extremely complicated the solution set is well the the message on in the other political party from Trump is like, we're just going to bring back all the mining and coal jobs. Right. So, I mean, that's the other simplistic point of view from the other side of the aisle. But I honestly have not heard any of the Democratic candidates other than that, that remark from Biden saying that we just need more coding jobs. I mean, people are really being much more sophisticated about making sure that we talk about clean energy jobs, other jobs that and other types of economic growth that could be out there. I think one of the key things, though, is this can't be something that comes just from our national leadership. It has to come locally from folks, but they need the tools to help them. So there's a great program at Department of Energy called Soul Smart, where a community can get a designation that someone from Department of Energy comes and spends six months in the community providing some of those tools and expertise on how to structure and facilitate solar and other agreements and then gives them all of the tools that they need and the grant funding to actually get it started and then leaves the community to to grow as as they have you know wanted to. I'm sorry, but I mean, after 35 or 40 years of failure of those approaches, like I'm just not going to back it again. <laughs> so, I mean, look, I mean, we we eviscerated the entire industrial United States. And that was my hometown of Sterling, Illinois. 
and nothing positive has happened in any of those towns across the country except for large cities like Pittsburgh. When you look at all of the towns that had single employers who supported them, there were 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people. They still, even today, where you have 3% unemployment rates, have 5, 8, 10% unemployment rates. Like, it doesn't matter what you try to do to diversify those economies. They need someone to go in and adopt that city by putting in their, their headquarters there, right? That's how this works. And, you know, they can try to build as many coffee shops and little, like, printing press things and whatever it is that they want to do in their local hometown. But, like, Appalachia has seen almost no progress from a data perspective in 30 years. So, like, I, I, I'm just saying when you look at the GDP of the economy, when you look at how much success they've had since Clinton went to all these places in 92 and told everybody their jobs weren't coming back and they were going to get retrained, there's no perceptible progress in the data whatsoever for small towns. I actually disagree. And I look to this data center that's being built in Wise County, Virginia, and it's on a mine reclamation site. It's going to have three and a half megawatts of solar, and it's going to rejuvenate that entire community and region. And I think that's really important. Every single day, you see articles about small successes. Now, granted, this isn't region-wide. So you're right, we have a lot of work left to do. But I don't know if anybody saw this piece in the New York Times last weekend about crafting recovery, and it's in rural Kentucky, um, where music is a huge piece of their culture. And they have this luthier, which is all these stringed instruments, um, who is training out-of-work folks and those who have been addicted to opioids on how to make instruments. I mean, everybody is trying to come together in those communities to, to figure out, like, what else do we have that we can build from? And it's not like they don't have anything, but they can't just have one thing. There's no silver bullet here. This is going to be a lot of different smaller solutions, and hopefully we can all kind of learn from each other, and hopefully they can get the skill sets, Jigger, from the folks that you work with on how to do that. I Look, I'm a huge fan of what you're saying, and I'm not dismissing the local efforts that they've made. But part of the problem is we need to stop lying to ourselves with this narrative, right? The, the American public is half as likely to move today than they were in the 1970s. Americans feel entitled to stay in place. And that's crazy. This is the one country in the world where you don't need a passport to move. You can just go in your car and go to Indeed.com and find a great job and go someplace that's paying you $70,000 a year tomorrow. And there are literally millions of those jobs on the internet. And everyone's like, but I don't want to leave where I went to elementary school. Well, there's not much I can do for you if you don't want to, like, strive for opportunity. Well, when the robots come for the podcasting jobs, I, for one, am going to be learning Python and Ruby on Rails and JavaScript. And if that doesn't work out for me, then I'll get my bus ticket and come to Bethesda, Maryland, knock on your door jigger and beg for a job. <laughs> you won't have to beg. Yeah, where you will not be able to find affordable housing. So, you know, you can go to an urban center and you might not be able to afford to live there. Well, and I don't think they can afford to live in Appalachia right now. I think that brings us into our final segment, which is our free electrons. Jigger, over to you. When, um, when you can't find work and you're on the bus searching for 
the the next urban center to to get a job and you you look over and you talk to the person next to you who's in a similar position what what uh free electron are you going to give them so there's been a bunch of um news in the last two weeks around automakers taking sides on evs so the ceo of honda really came out and said that he didn't really see full battery electric vehicles as the right solution and that they're converting most of their fleet to plug-in hybrids and then Jeep just unveiled plug-in hybrid versions of Wrangler, Cherokee, and Compass. And it's it's a really interesting thing that's happening, right? Because there's, at the one hand, like all these people on the Vanguard who want pure battery electric vehicles, 300-mile range. And on the other hand, you find that plug-in hybrid vehicles with 20 miles of range on the electricity side will decarbonize 65% of people's miles per year. So it's like, if you want the fastest possible decarbonization of the transportation sector, it's better to do the more complicated plug-in hybrids than the pure battery electric vehicles. And you're seeing pretty much all the automakers now announcing that within the next few years, uh, that all of their popular models will have a plug-in hybrid feature. But you're just getting huge blowback from the battery electric vehicle enthusiasts. Catherine, what is your free electron? Yes, good news coming out of Congress. Um, the Clean Future Act, and CLEAN stands for, of course, it had to be an acronym, Climate Leadership and Environmental Action for Our Nation, was introduced yesterday. Just a memo, the the bill language, which is still going to be just a discussion draft, um, was introduced by Chairman Pallone of the Energy and Commerce Committee The goal of this bill is to get to net zero, 100% clean economy by 2050, and everything in the bill is pegged to that goal. It is only covering their jurisdiction for that committee. So it's while it is economy-wide, it is not fully representative of all of the different kinds of um, policies that you could put into place. It does not have a carbon tax at all or a cost on carbon. It does a lot of other things. It's very sweeping. It has a buy clean um, requirement. Um, It has a bunch of manufacturing provisions. It has the National Climate Bank. It has all kinds of efficiency actions. It has PERPA. It has a lot for FERC and transmission. Um, I mean, it is pretty sweeping. It's pretty exciting. It's not going to pass, just so that everybody knows. I'm not. We're, we're not counting on that. But what it is 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 actually putting some language in place um, that we can start socializing and working on for 2021 if the politics change. So I think this is. It's really great that they're doing this right now. It is only a Democratic bill. There are no Republicans on it. They haven't written it so that Republicans would be, you know, they haven't started bargaining against themselves to get Republicans in the fold. I'm sure they would love to have some on the bill. But right now it was just introduced by Chairman Pallone along with um, subcommittee Chairman um, Tonko and Rush. Well, speaking of climate politics and policy, that brings me to my free electron, which is uh, my production company, Postscript Audio, is collaborating with the Years Project, the folks who uh, developed the Years of Living Dangerously series for Showtime and National Geographic to help them with their podcast, Climate 2020, which is going to look at how climate change is factoring into the presidential race. And we're going to be you know, helping with them 
to they, they've already been working on the show for many months and we're going to be adjusting the format and working really closely with their co-hosts and developing more field reported pieces in states around the country where environmental issues and, and climate change could potentially factor in and the show itself is really fascinating and we're going to continue to beef it up and uh, i just think that there's a real opportunity here to continue to talk about the business solutions and the policy like we do, and then also talk about the politics and how to mobilize voters and think through how do you get people who are environmentally minded to to act on that in the election and to communicate the consequences of uh, keeping Trump in office from a climate change and environmental perspective. So I'm really psyched on that project. We're going to be working with them over the course of the year and throughout the election and I hope folks can check out that Climate 2020 podcast. That's so exciting. Congratulations, Stephen. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Well, that's going to wrap the show. We're so grateful to have all of you here with us once again as we enter 2020. Hello to all the new listeners who found us over the last month or so. Pass on any word you can via social media, email, or just tapping someone on the shoulder on the bus and holding out your phone and saying, hey, check out this podcast. If, if you want more background on many of the stories we cover, be sure to subscribe to Green Tech Media's newsletters. Go to greentechmedia.com slash newsletters. We've got a bunch of different verticals to choose from based on your interests. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. We are produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my lovely co-hosts. And we are The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.